There is no greater thing to know than to be able to sing and say that Christ is mine forevermore and that I am his forevermore. Let's go to the Lord now. Uh, Join me in a brief word of prayer as we now will look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you and we simply ask that as we now look to your word, that you would show us yourself within your word. We ask that you would show us ourselves, and we ask that you would show us our Savior. We pray these things in your Son's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, today is December 30. That's no surprise to anyone. The last Sunday of 2018, it is New Year's weekend. We're in the midst of the holiday season. Uh, There are a number of our members who are out of town, a number of members who are ill Today, it's good to see everybody who has made it here this morning. You guys may be aware of this. Some of you might not be. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but there are a number of churches, even in our area and a number of churches in our land, who are not having service today uh, because they had a number of services on the Christmas holiday and have decided to not gather today in order to give people a break. I am not here to lambast anybody for such a decision I would offer though, that one of the things that I rejoice in here at CBC is that we at least strive to have an understanding of how desperately we need the corporate gathering. So we are commanded in Scripture to gather on the Lord's Day, no doubt. And it is never less than that in terms of why we come here, Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day, but it is more than that. I pray that for myself and for you, that you have tasted and seen and have come to know how desperately you need this. How desperately you need the word of God. How desperately you need the sacrament of the Lord's table. How desperately you need song and prayer and time with the saints so that your faith might be sustained. So I say all of that because we do desperately need to have our hearts tuned to sing the praise of God. We need to have our minds recalibrated to think God's thoughts after him because we do not do that naturally. I rejoice in the fact that we have had the opportunity to gather here today and that we now have the opportunity to look to God's word. Recalibration of our minds and hearts happens by the work of the Spirit of God, most dramatically perhaps at conversion when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it happens in an ongoing way as well. Because of sin, the fact that sin still dwells in us and because we live in a broken world, we tend to struggle. And so we need times like this. Corporate worship is a lifeline for the Christian. It is far from just a duty or an obligation. It is our very life that we would come and do these things together. We need to be reminded again and again and week after week of who we are in Christ, and we need to be reminded again and again, week after week, of what God has done for us in His Son. So to me, just I would offer this for anyone who would ever say it's a good idea to not meet on the Lord's Day because we need to rest. I would offer that, well, friend, I trust you mean well. And at the same time, I would stake my life on the fact that this is where you come for rest. This is where you come to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. If you need rest, For your weary soul, if you need rest in your weary life, where else would you come? 
but to the Lord Jesus and to the Word of God and to the church. I'll leave it at that. If you have your Bibles with you today, I hope that you do. Open them up to Psalm 106. Forgive me for that very awkward introduction. I saw things on Twitter this morning that kind of stirred my heart and mind a little bit. We will put the words to Psalm 106 up on this screen for those of you who have not brought your Bibles with you today. One great thing that everybody could do, even now, I wouldn't mind, download a Bible app to have on your phone. It's always good to have the Word of God with you wherever you go. We will be considering all 48 verses today of Psalm 106. It is a glorious psalm, a wonderful psalm of redemption and the history of what God has done for His people in spite of their sin. So now, without further ado, before we go any further, I will read God's Word for us, beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, 
but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. We could about close in prayer. Thanks be to God for His Word. I pray that our time in considering this wonderful passage will be encouraging, challenging, uplifting for all of us here this morning. My plan for us is to make our way through this entire psalm with two main themes of the psalmist in view. So I want you to put sort of two lenses on as we make our way through this psalm. The first lens that we want to look through would be the lens of God's praiseworthiness. He is worthy of praise and thanksgiving and honor because he's a redeemer and because he is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. So that's one lens that we're going to be looking through. And the other lens, friends, is the lens of the failure of God's people as compared to the faithfulness of God. God's action as a redeemer and his steadfast love are all the more remarkable in the face of the sin of his people. God's people, we are no different, have failed over and over again and yet he remains our faithful Savior. Praise be to his name. That is our only hope, just as it was the only hope of Israel. So let's put our eyes together on verse 1. We see there that the psalmist exhorts, his readers exhorts the congregation of Israel, who would have been singing this in corporate worship, no doubt, to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, give thanks to Him because He's good. Brother, thank you for your prayer earlier today in helping us to praise God for His goodness. He is completely good. The ground of His praise and the honor being given to Him is the fact that He is good and the ground of His goodness, you see this. Praise Him because He's good. He's good because His steadfast love endures forever. You see that in verse 1. Verse 2, we move forward. Rhetorical question. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Answer, no one. No one can do this sufficiently. No one can do this adequately. 
Even the angels struggle in heaven to praise God as he is worthy of. No one can adequately fathom or utter the mighty deeds of the Lord. And no one can adequately declare all of his praise. We will be praising him forever and forever and forever after that. Because of the wonderful works he has done and because of who he is. We see in verse 3 that the psalmist tells us, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Amen. True statement. It is blessed. You are blessed if you do justice and righteousness at all times. We'll continue to think more about that later on today. Then we move on into verse 4 where the psalmist then turns very personally even to the Lord. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people and help me when you save them. Show me favor too, Lord, when you save your people and help me too when you save your people. The psalmist, it's clear, desires, you see this from verse 5, he desires to partake in the eternal prosperity of God's people. I want to be a part of the way that you are going to bless your people forever. That I may look, he says, upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. That I might rejoice in the gladness of your nation. I want to rejoice with your people. That I may glory in your inheritance. I want to glory in your kingdom forever with you and with your people. That's the plea of the psalmist. It is a good plea and a good desire. We will continue to think more about that. His posture is also a humble one. He seems content not to be the greatest, not to be something special. He seems content to just be simply counted among the number of the righteous and the redeemed. It also seems clear as you read his words that he doesn't seem to think that he deserves any of these things. Remember me, Lord. This is going to depend upon you, God, your faithfulness, your remembering of me, your goodness, your mercy toward me. When you save your people, just please save me too. Then we turn in verse 6 to consider sort of a running history and a running commentary of God's people, Israel. The psalmist writes very straightforwardly in verse 6, both we, that meaning the nation of Israel, people alive in his day, and our fathers, those who came before, have sinned. We have done wrong. We have transgressed your good law and your commands. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Just to be utterly clear. And then he begins to catalog. Not, it's not an exhaustive list, but there are a number of things that he retells here. Things that happen in history, in time and space, that are recorded for us on the pages of Scripture that happen in the nation of Israel. We begin in verses 7 and 12 with this cataloging of the history of God's people and looking back to the Exodus. This is the great event, many in the room will be familiar, where God delivered his people from captivity in the land of Egypt, the most powerful land in the world at the time. The Israelites were oppressed and enslaved to the Egyptians. And God worked mightily through his servant Moses to deliver his people. A million of them 
We read of the mighty acts of God at the shore of the Red Sea. How he parted the waters and the people walked through as on dry ground and all of their enemies were consumed then by the water when they came after them. But we see that the people, in verses 7 through 12, you see this. The people feared and the people grumbled against Moses. We read about this in Exodus chapter 14. When the Israelites get to the shore of the Red Sea, they are making their way out of Egypt. They see the Egyptian army pursuing them and they are afraid. And they say to Moses, God's servant, what have you done? Why have you brought us here simply to die? It would have been better if we had stayed in Egypt. And the psalmist helps us to see that they weren't doubting Moses. They were doubting the Lord, ultimately. They were doubting God's purposes and God's promises of deliverance. There is some good news. Verse 10, here we read that God saved them from the hand of the foe. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. No one of them was left, so the enemies wiped out. Then they believed his words. The people believed God. And they sang his praises. That's good. But it doesn't last long. Verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. We read of this account in Numbers chapter 11 where the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. They are grumbling and they are complaining. They've just been rescued from slavery. They've just been rescued from bondage. And they are grumbling about the food that they have to eat and the circumstances that they find themselves in. And they say, look, in Egypt we had meat to eat. Like, how much better was it back there than it is here? And so they made it clear, we want some protein. And so the Lord gave them what they desired. He sent quail, a boatload of them. Like filled the entire camp of Israel like waist high with quail. They were eating on that, I imagine, for some time. But then along with those quail, even as they were eating it and enjoying it, before they had even consumed it all, God sent a plague among them physical illness as a result of their grumbling and as a result of their sin he sent a measure of his judgment and we read of that there a wasting disease he sent among his people we see in verse 15 but the psalmist goes on in verses 16 through 18 we hear of another time in the history of Israel when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron the holy one of the Lord the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram, and fire also broke out in their company, and the flame burned up the wicked. This is none other than Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. A man named Korah, along with Abiram and Dathan, and a man named On, led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron in the midst of the people of Israel. These men did not like the position that Moses in particular was put in. Put in authority over us. Who is this man? We don't like the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We don't like the leadership that we are under. And so they rebelled. The Lord acted in judgment against the rebels because he, after all, was the one who had put Moses in his post. He, the Lord, was the one who had put Aaron 
in his post as a leader of Israel. The promised land, even though the circumstances in the wilderness were hard, the promised land was coming. The promised land had been just that, promised. And so the Lord again acted in judgment upon his people. He calls the earth to open up and swallow up. So open up, caved, men fall in. The earth in that sense consumed the rebels, those led by Korah and others. We also read in number 16 that there were 250 men who were offering incense on behalf of the rebels on behalf of Korah and Abiram and Dathan. And we read that the fire of the Lord consumed those 250 men. So that is what the psalm is talking about in verses 16 through 18. But it continues. Verses 19 through 23, excuse me, we have another account. This is none other than the account of the golden calf that we read about in Exodus 32 and 33. You will remember that God gave his law through Moses on Mount Sinai. You will remember that it was quite a spectacle. Fire and lightning and cloud and all of these things. And Moses comes down from the mountain, but then he's going to go back up after the covenant has been affirmed in chapter 24. The people say, we will do what the Lord has said. Moses goes back up on the mountain. He's gone for not even 40 days, right? And the people have said, we're going to do what the Lord asked. We're going to obey his law. We're in this covenant. Yes, not even 40 days in, we're making an idol. We're fashioning a calf out of gold. The Lord in his wrath, we read, threatened to consume them. I'm done with these people. And then Moses interceded. Moses pled with the Lord. The way that he pleads with God is very interesting. It's another sermon perhaps for another day. God, if you don't go with us to the land that you have promised to give us, how are the nations going to know how great you are? He pleads the Lord's glory and the Lord relents. I could talk for a moment about how the Lord uses means to accomplish his purposes. I will refrain from saying too much here. The sovereignty of God and the infallible purposes of God and the ultimate plans of God incorporate things like the intercession of Moses. It's not as though the Lord changes his mind, as though something happened that he did not foresee, but he intended always to use intercessors in his plan to accomplish it and to teach us about his ways with us. Moving on in the psalm, in verses 24 through 27, we read now about an account We'll look at these verses together. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. We're referring now to Numbers chapter 13 and 14, where you might remember that spies were sent out of the camp of Israel into the land of Canaan to sort of search out and scope out the promised land that God said, I'm going to give you. Spies, a group of them were sent. They looked around. The land was beautiful. It was lush and plentiful. Looks like an awesome place to be, but there's a problem. There are mighty men who live in that land. Warrior men. The spies come back. Again, Numbers 13 and 14. They give the reports. How beautiful the land is, but man, there are some some mighty people that live there. We got no chance. This land, it won't be ours. We read here 
Verse 25 of the psalm. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. When we see that they despised the pleasant land having no faith in His promise, it's just this. They did not believe the promise of God that He would in fact come through and give them the land He said He would give them. God, I don't, I don't know. There are mighty people there that we can't handle doubting the promises of God. And they murmured to each other. There's no way in their tents. And so the Lord is angered. Therefore, God pronounces that this generation, the murmuring, doubting, grumbling generation, will not see the promised land. They will not enter it. Their children, whom they were murmuring to themselves, like, our kids are going to become a prey to these mighty people in Canaan. The Lord says, your children, who you said would become a prey, will be the ones to enter the land. Moving forward, in verses 28 through 31 of our psalm, we read now of an account given to us in Numbers chapter 25, where the people of Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, a false god. The language straight out of Numbers 25 is that the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They began to mix with people that they were told not to mix with. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. The Lord had said, don't mix with other nations, because if you do, you will end up taking on their practices, including their religion. You will worship their gods. And Israel did just that. The Lord sent a plague on the people because of their idolatry. We see in our text in verse 30 that the plague was sent. Verse 29, excuse me. Then verse 30, Phineas stood up and intervened. That again is given to us in the book of Numbers where Phineas, who is the grandson of Aaron, kills a man who was rebelling in open sight, bringing a, a Moabite woman to the tent of meeting in the midst of all of this chaos. This man does this act and Phineas rises up and kills both people. And he is commended for his action as a measure of the Lord's judgment. And the plague was stayed. We see that. But there were still, even though the plague was stayed, 24,000 people, we read, who died. This is no small thing. 24,000 people died. Verses 32 and 33 in our text. We read in an account given to us in Numbers chapter 20. Where they angered the Lord at the waters of Meribah. This is where the people were thirsty in the wilderness. They wanted something to drink. That's understandable. But then we see in our text, it went ill with Moses on their account, on the account of the people. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. This is the account where the Lord tells Moses, speak to the rock. I'm going to cause water to come out of this rock for my people to drink. Moses, in his anger and frustration, you see this, his spirit is embittered. This is helpful in understanding even what happened in Numbers chapter 20 and why he is judged for it in his anger and frustration towards the people. I mean, all this grumbling and all of this just complaining and doubting him at every turn. He essentially loses it and strikes the rock twice with the rod. Water does come out because God is good. 
And yet Moses is told, because of that, you will not enter the promised land either. Joshua will be the one who will take the people in. It's also another sermon for another day that Moses, who represents the law, did not get the people to the promised land. Yeshua, the Savior, would get the people to the promised land. There are no coincidences in God's word. Moving forward now in verses 34 through 43 of our passage, we read a kind of sweeping account of once the people enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, Israel is dwelling there. We see here again, beginning in verse 34, they did not completely destroy the peoples of the land of Canaan. Remember, God had said, don't mix with them. You need to destroy them. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to give them into your hands, but you need to wipe them out. Because this is about me conquering your enemies. This is about me fulfilling my promises. This is about me giving you the land that you're going to possess forever. And you are not to mix with pagan nations. You are to worship me and me alone. And if you mix with them, you will not do that. And so Israel ended up doing exactly what the Lord had warned. We read, they mixed with the nations, verse 35, and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They served the false gods. They're even called demons. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their own children. The Israelites are sacrificing their own kids to the gods of Canaan. This is how bad this has become. The land, we are told, was polluted with blood. This became a continual thing. Israel worshiping the gods of other nations and disregarding the right worship of the Lord and disregarding his good law that he had given them. To the point of, and later on, once the kingdoms are divided, the, the book of the law is altogether lost and misplaced. It has no place in God's kingdom, no place amongst the people of the Lord until King Josiah and his contemporaries recover the law. It's a sad tale of devolving into sin. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he judged them. We see that beginning in verse 40. The Lord was angry. He abhorred his heritage, his people. He gave them into the hands of the nations. What's this? This is when the kingdoms, well, the kingdom splits, first of all, under Solomon, into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And then both of those kingdoms respectively are conquered and carried off into exile. The northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Both the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, conquered, sieged, ransacked. Jerusalem is leveled to the ground by the Babylonians and God's people are carried into exile. But then, we turn again in verse 44. Nevertheless, what a wonderful word. This has been 41 verses, in this, in this song, 41 verses of sin and unfaithfulness and transgression, not doing what is good, not obeying God, not obeying his law, not loving him. 
Nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. He is a faithful and good and merciful God. He hears the cries of his people, even when they are mired in sin. For their sake. So you you recall in verse 8, flip back over if you have to, I do. Verse 8 at the Red Sea, God saved the people for his name's sake, that his power would be proclaimed, heralded. Verse 45, for their sake. And as our brother said earlier, not contradictory. God saving his people for his name's sake, for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his mercy and love and grace being heralded to the nations is good for his people. He does it for his sake ultimately, and he also does it for their good. For their sake, he remembered his covenant because that's what he does. It's the kind of God he is. And he relented according to anything the people had done? No. He relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 46, he caused them, his people, to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Think here in particular of the favor shown to Israel by the nation of Persia. The Persians would conquer the Babylonians. And so Israel, who had been, Judah in particular, who had been enslaved to the Babylonians in captivity, now, by default, is underneath the reign and rule and the captivity of the Persians. And God shows remarkable favor through the Persian kings to his people. This is the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. They were given a decree by the king of Persia to do that. Remarkable kindness and faithfulness of God. He caused his people to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And then we get these beautiful verses to conclude the psalm in verses 47 and 48, where the psalmist, in light of all of these things, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have committed transgression, but you are faithful, your love is steadfast, you always keep your covenants. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. We've been scattered all over the place. Save us that we may give thanks to your holy name and that we might praise you forever. And then he ends with a word of doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, forever. From everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. May it be so that God would be praised forever. And then a final exhortation. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he's your redeemer. You have failed You, God's people, we, God's people, have been faithless often, and yet He always remains faithful. Praise Him. He's worthy. So now, friends, what I would like to do in the remainder of our time together is to consider two implications of this text. Two implications of this song for our consideration together. Number one. I want us to consider together the story of redemption and what it means for how we understand the Bible. The story of redemption and what that means for how we understand the Bible. 
Now, those who have been at CBC for some time might know at least some of what I'm about to say, and that is fine with me. Happy to continue to beat the drum of redemptive history. God's plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ, applied by His Spirit to the praise of His glory forever, is the point of the Bible. I'll stake my ministry on it. So we're going to think about that. Some in the room were brought up in the church. Others in the room, maybe not. There is a lot of blessing and grace and good things that come from being brought up in the church. And you should never feel less than if you were not. One of the good things, perhaps, for you, if you sit here in Christ today and you were not brought up in the church, is that you might not have as much baggage with respect to poor theology and what we're about to consider together. So I'm speaking to people right now. I'm speaking to everyone. But I also have in my mind people who have some kind of background in the church, even if it's not long. They've been exposed to various kinds of teaching and have maybe been impacted by some of that. As we read this psalm, I mean, this is one of those texts that just kind of preaches itself. The story is just so compelling. It just kind of keeps coming, wave after wave after wave. As we read this psalm, or as we read the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament, it then should cause us to think. It's pretty interesting how many of us were taught to think about the Old Testament in church. We, that we, I mean just American evangelical Christianity, we have at points tended to moralize the lives of Old Testament figures. And we also tend to revere Old Testament people of God and put them on a kind of pedestal in our minds. We do. We put them on a flannel board and we also sort of put them on a pedestal. I'm not saying that everybody does this, but we are prone to do this. It's interesting how we at times can talk about and view Old Testament saints. I'm talking about people who are redeemed. I'm not talking about people who would be damned forever. I'm talking about redeemed Old Testament saints. We talk about them as though they lived lives that were righteous and devout as a rule. And that on occasion there was some indiscretion. We'll talk about them in other words, as though they were really holy people who just messed up every now and then. And friends, I don't know about you, but when I read the scripture, it just doesn't jive with what's there. The account of God's people is anything but pretty. The account of God's people, by and large, is filled with things not to imitate. I want to be really clear, because I don't like to be misunderstood. Who does, right? But I certainly don't want to be misunderstood right now. It is absolutely good and right and okay to preach people as examples. Right? So hear me say that. It is good, legitimate, okay to preach people in Scripture as examples in a secondary sense. So that matters. Whenever we preach people as example as the main point of Scripture, wrong. The main point of every human being in Scripture Amongst God's people, not named Jesus, was to point ultimately to Christ. Whether we're talking about Abraham, or Noah, or David, or Samuel, or anyone, pick them. The point of their lives is never, number one, be like them. No, the point of them being in Scripture is about the one who would come to save them and you. 
Secondarily, yes, let's learn from their lives. That's legitimate. But we need to keep in mind that when we learn from the lives of people recorded in Scripture, there are as many, if not more, things to avoid doing than there are things to imitate. We have to be real about that. All right, let me also, clarification. Don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not meaning to slam any human being that's recorded in the biblical witness. Not my aim. Not at all. But what I am saying is that these people, other than Jesus, recorded in this book, are just like you and me. Just like you and me. Now, many of them, I have no doubt, were are more godly. It's fine. But they are sinners just the same. What I'm trying to reiterate for us is that they too, just like you and just like me, were justified, declared righteous, completely by the grace of God, completely by faith in God's promised Messiah. It's important that we would understand the roles that people play in Scripture. I want to illustrate this a couple of ways. The first illustration that I give might very well empty the parking lot, which is why the second illustration, I'm going to quote Jesus. So it's like, okay, well, I might work you up with the first one, and then it's like, okay, we're going to come back to Christ. First way to illustrate how we can do this and think about figures, Old Testament figures, in an unhelpful way. Let's continue to consider Abraham, right? Abraham upheld in a number of ways. He is our spiritual father, that is true. The father of Israel, that is true. He explicitly is counted righteous for his faith. Paul picks up on that in Romans and in Galatians, that all of us who have faith in the Messiah are spiritual children of Abraham. Abraham is without doubt unique in terms of the role that he plays in the history of redemption. No doubt at all. Nobody in this room has a role to play as significant as Abraham. Nobody. If you think you do, we should talk. But when it comes to figures in the Bible, Old Testament or New, just like Abraham, just like the apostles, just like kings, various people, prophets, there is no doubt that people were anointed to specific tasks in remarkable ways. No doubt. And there is no doubt that specific people had specific roles to play in the unfolding story of redemption. No doubt. But those roles and that anointing had everything to do with God. Those roles and that anointing had everything to do with God, His purposes, His providence, His plans, His grace. It wasn't because the individuals were so great that they were chosen, that they were used. The entire biblical witness makes that clear. God is explicit. I don't choose people because of what's in them. It's because of me, my purposes, my grace. So we certainly can observe Abraham's life, what he did. We can observe his faith and how that seemed to grow over you know, the course of several chapters, 40 years of his life. We can think about his virtue or maybe his lack of virtue at points and learn things from his life. But here's the thing. This is... This is where people could get worked up, and that's okay. Just to illustrate how foolish we can be in thinking like, okay, the point of Abraham's life is to learn from him. Number one, 
When it comes to learning from Abraham's life, remember, he's an ordinary, justified sinner. We could do a similar thing by doing a study of a saint sitting here at CBC. Now, before you accuse me of blasphemy, let me say what I mean. I can actually think of a number of you who have not sold your spouse into sexual exploitation twice to save your own backside. Abraham did that. I can think of a number of you who have not doubted God's promises in a way where you decide, I'm going to have sex with my servant, my wife's servant girl to have a child, even though God said, I'll give you a kid. That's not to slam Abraham. That's just to say he was a sinner like you and like me. We could take one of the more mature saints among us. We could learn from that person. We could learn things to imitate. Faith, devotion, holiness, love, wisdom, practical tips. And then we could learn things to avoid from their lives. Grumbling, selfishness, despair, lust, anger, you name it. It's good that we would learn from saints of the past. It's good that we would learn from each other. But you would be really concerned and rightly concerned if the elders suggested a 10-week study on one of our members, one of our members' lives. We're going to study the most godly person among us and imitate them. That's what we're going to do for 10 weeks. You would be really concerned. And you should be. And all I'm saying, the point that I'm trying to make, is that the way that we often preach Old Testament people is equally dangerous and unhelpful. It is not Abraham's holiness or devotion that is utterly unique. It is the role that God ordained for him to play that is unique. And Abraham, just like us, is looking and longing for the day that the Messiah would come. The idea that we would think of Abraham as sacred because of his person, I trust that Abraham himself would be horrified at that reality because he would know better. No way should you uphold me this way. Now, let me bring this home with citing our Lord Jesus as he was dealing with Jews of his own day. In John chapter 8, there's a famous interchange where Jesus talks to a group of Jews about who their father is. Jesus talks about the fact that his father is in heaven. Your father is not, actually. Your father is the devil. And the, the Jewish audience is worked up saying, no, our Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father. And they go on and on and on about Abraham. And Jesus gets to a point in the dialogue, this is, comes to a head in verses 56 through 58. Verse 58 is famous. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the Lord who covenanted with Abraham. That's huge. That's why they want to kill him. But before he says those words, he says something else. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Paraphrase. You are all worked up about Abraham. You are psyched up and obsessing about Abraham. Abraham was excited and worked up and obsessed with me. And the fact that I was coming. He looked to my day. He saw it and was glad. The point is not to slam Abraham. The point is that let's do what Abraham did. 
Let's, with Abraham, look to Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who would save us all from our sins. Friends, the point here is that the Old Testament accounts of the people of God, it makes Jesus, on the one hand, obvious when he shows up. When he shows up on the scene, it makes him obvious because it's been clear. The people of God have failed over and over again. They have been given the law and they haven't kept it. There would have to be a redeemer who would fulfill the law. There would have to be a redeemer who could come and atone for the sins that Israel had committed. And so when Jesus shows up and says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I'm getting baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. I have come to atone for sin. It makes sense. The Savior's here. The Messiah has come. The story of God's people is first and foremost, as you know, a story about God, not the people of God. It's about His steadfast love and faithfulness to keep His covenant of redemption. And more importantly and specifically, as you've heard me say so many times, the entire story of redemption points to the one through whom that redemption would be accomplished. Again, it's legitimate to preach Old Testament, New Testament saints as examples to follow or to avoid imitating, but we do that in a secondary way. We preach Christ and we herald Him. This is how Jesus understood the Scripture. There's a reason we read Luke 24 today. The Emmaus Road. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them all the things in the Scriptures concerning Himself. Jesus understood that the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures were about Him. Second point for our consideration, this will be briefer. Second implication of this psalm. I trust you understand the first implication that it's obvious as you look at the failure of God's people that there must be more to the story than them. Implication number two is about what all of this, what we've been considering, Psalm 106, God's story of redemption, the accomplishments of Christ, what should that evoke in us? What should that produce in you and me? I would offer four things. It should evoke humility, gratitude, prayer, and praise. Humility, gratitude, prayer, and praise. We'll consider those briefly together one at, one at the time. So these realities of our sin and God's faithfulness, His unswerving commitment to the covenant that He's made should humble us. The fact that he is our redeemer in the face of our sin should produce humility in you and me. If you want an example to follow, look at the psalmist, right? So here we go. Let's imitate this man. Verse four, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Verse 47, save us, God. We are at your mercy. Please save us and gather us from among the nations. I and we as your people, we don't deserve anything good. I'm a rebel. I'm a lawbreaker. I have failed you, Lord, over and over and over again, and I deserve what lawbreakers get, namely judgment, death, wrath. I certainly do not deserve to be with you forever. But Lord, you're good. Your love is steadfast. Remember me. 
when you save your people. Save me when you save them. The goal of my life is to be counted among the number of your people. It's a humble posture. Secondly, it should produce gratitude. Again, let's imitate the psalmist in what he says. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 47 again. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. Marks of a Christian as we grow in the faith without question are humility and gratitude. Two marks of a believer, right? That we are humbled by the realities of God's redemptive work and we are filled with gratitude because of what he's done. And we live lives that are characterized by humility and by gratitude. Thank you, God, for what you have done for your people. Thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you for showing me steadfast love that I never could have earned and certainly have not. Third, prayer. The psalmist writes in verse 3, Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. True statement. Own that. We are blessed when we observe justice. We are blessed without doubt when we practice righteousness. Amen. This, friends, I trust as you hear those words, at least this is a way that I respond to it, when I read, blessed are those who observe justice, blessed are those who practice righteousness at all times, I say, yes, that's exactly right, and this is an occasion for prayer. Because I don't do that like I should. I don't always observe justice. And I don't always do righteousness. The psalmist himself makes that clear about him and all of God's people in verse 6. When he says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity and we've done wickedness. So clearly, we don't practice righteousness all the time. So we know in Christ that the Lord has saved us. He has justified us in spite of our sin. He has sent Christ to be our righteousness. We herald that banner all the time, and we should. It's our only hope in life and death. The righteousness of Christ counted to us through faith, and the atoning work of Christ counted to us through faith. So we know that, and at the same time, we pray, God, work in me. Work in me by your Spirit. Keep changing me. Transform me. Cause me to observe justice. Help me to do righteousness. Forgive me for my sins on the one hand, and on the other hand, at the same time, keep me from sinning. Forgive me for my sins, Father, and keep me from sin today. Keep my feet from stumbling. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. That's what Christians pray. Give me grace that I might live for you. That's what Christians pray. But finally, this should evoke in us praise. Again, the psalmist in verses 1 and 2, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? No one. We could never do it adequately, but praise Him. And then verses 47 and 48, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting 
to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Friend, your life, my life, and this song reveal one of the primary reasons that the Lord God is worthy of our greatest and most heartfelt praise. That reason is this. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. Paul writes that very phrase in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. It is an astonishing statement. Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only religion in the world. Forget non-theistic religions, atheistic religions. Let's talk about theistic religions. Christianity is unique in making that statement. Our Roman Catholic friends don't believe that statement. Right? The gospel, the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the only thing in the world that would ever say God justifies the ungodly. You don't make yourself good enough. You don't work at it for a while and then God will save you. You don't cooperate with his grace for a bit and then maybe it'll go well. No, God justifies, declares righteous the ungodly. That is scandalous, and it's glorious news. You haven't been justified because you've done enough to be considered godly. You will not, this matters, you will not be finally saved because you will have, through sanctification, turned yourself into the kind of person that God would have been happy to save in the first place. It's not how this works. Ungodly, sinful, and God says, in Christ, by faith, by my grace, righteous. And it's over. And then, yes, your spirit, God's spirit, is put in me, and I'm changed, and I'm sanctified, and my sanctification will be complete at the return of our Lord Jesus. It is certain, and will be with the Lord forever, but it will not be because I have done it. It will be because Christ has accomplished it. You have been justified and declared righteous and you will be finally saved solely by the grace of God in Christ. All of your sin was punished through Christ's sacrifice on the cross and that's over. All of the righteousness that you would ever need was credited to you the moment you trusted Jesus and that's over. And now you're alive in Christ. Now this is what it means to be free. Not free unto sin, free unto righteousness. Free to keep the law without fear of condemnation of the law. That's the Christian life. Free to keep the law, not for merit, but because it's good and because it honors God. This gospel is in no way, I, I care about this as much as I care about most anything in ministry and in our church. This gospel of faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, in no way produces lawless living. If you think that, you have not understood it. No way. It is the age-old charge. You preach this, people will not give a rip about holiness. That's a lie. That's a human argument. It's not biblical. We are counted righteous completely apart from any work that we will ever do, that we've ever done, and the transformed life is real. Those things are not contradictory. 
And the transformed life, it glorifies God, it's good for you, but it earns you nothing in terms of your standing before Him. Not a contradiction. Anyone who has ever trusted Christ and been declared righteous because of what Christ has accomplished, the last thing that that person would ever say is good, let me now go sin. If that's the posture, we need to have a different conversation. It is remarkable news. It is comforting and joyous news that my salvation and yours are as secure as they could possibly be because Christ has made it so. We can read of the accounts of God's people and see their failure. We can look our failure in the face, be honest about it, strive to do better, correct one another in love, and know at the end of the day that I'm good with God because of Christ. This matters for our lives. We are alive in Jesus. We are free in Christ. We are righteous in Christ. We are secure in Christ. Blessed be the Lord from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. That's right. Our Father, we do thank you so much and praise you for what you have accomplished for us in your Son. We pray that the Gospel and what Jesus has done for us would wash over us perhaps in a new way today. We pray that our hearts and our minds would be stirred as we contemplate the realities and the glories of your plan of redemption. We pray that you would fill us with gratitude, that we would be thankful. We pray that we would be humble, that it would be the greatest joy of our lives to be just considered in Christ, to be one of your people and to be with you forever. Help us to get over ourselves. We pray that we would live lives, Father, that are not only full of humility and characterized by gratitude, but also that are full and characterized by praise. We pray that we would glorify you in the way that we live. We pray that you would work in us by your spirit. Keep changing us. Help us to trust you as you do that work in us. Be with us now as we come to the Lord's table. Reassure us that we are in fact good with you through the merits of your son. And we pray that we would be filled with joy even as we partake of the bread and of the juice and as we sing. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.